Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Joseph Sissio, a uniquely talented and visionary creative leader in the world of retail. Joseph Sissio's high-profile positions brought him into contact with leading celebrities of the day. He became close friends with figures such as Lady Nancy Slim Keith, Lauren Bacall, Audrey Hepburn, the Kissingers, and Joan Rivers, earning him a fascinating insight into the private lives of people who most can only read about and a few were privileged to know intimately. He writes about it in Friends Bearing Gifts. It's a book about these relationships and the unmatched experience of remembering each one through the beautiful objects they each gave to him, featuring stunning photography of Sissio's Connecticut home and individual essays on each friend and their gifts. The book deeply emphasizes the importance of relationships and is a reflection on a life filled with friends, objects, and ultimately exceptional memories. It's a great book, and I had a great conversation with Joe about it. I give you Joe Sissio. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I'll tell you, um, your book, Friends Bearing Gifts, I mean, it's it, it's interesting because it strikes me that you could read it a couple ways, that you could read it from the friends to the gifts and then as a window in your house, or you could read it from the house and the gifts in them to the friends. <laughs> like, I think I began, I read it the other way. I, I, I read it in a way where I, I was reading the stories of these friendships, then ruminating on the gifts and where they are in your house. And I, I thought equally you could do it the other way. I mean, were, were you thinking that when you wrote the book? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because it even goes, uh, I didn't realize at first a tiny bit beyond that. Uh, because number one, I, I sort of was not wanting to do a book. I just didn't think, I had the capacity, but friends kept pushing me for different reasons. But as I got very much into it, all I, uh, all of a sudden, I thought to myself, you know what? Number one, the last thing in the world I wanted was a memoir. But it is a memoir in many ways. But it also is, I think, some great insight into retailing, into just general management, uh, you know, the the value of people, not just friends, but the value of relationships in your life. So it took a lot of different directions. I all of a sudden I realized, and I thought, "Wow, you know what? This is this this has got a lot of different kind of people that might be interested in reading it." Yeah, because unlike a, a typical memoir, it, it's not chronologically oriented, right? It, it, right? It's not if 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 somebody came to this looking for a story of your life in a traditional sense. It, it it would confound them. But, you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking, gosh, the way to really get this book would be to walk through your house with you after I'd read it. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Because it seems that, that you're reminded of your story as you look around your own house. And that's that's that was the purpose. That was the lesson that Cece kept uh, trying to teach me when I was like 20 years old, is these things someday will be the vehicle to bring back the memories of the relationships that you had over the years. It's not about the, the things as far as, you know, their uh, value, but the significance of their association. 
So what you're saying is very accurate. And, and again, that's how it really happened. You know, friends would come here all the time, uh, different people, and they'd walk around and say, oh, Joe, I love that crab. Where did you get that crab? Or Joe, that monkey's fabulous. You know, whatever, whatever. They'd focus on something. And everything had a story. And that's and every, every once in a while, people would say, Joe, you got to do a book, Joe. You got to do a book. Yeah, and so, Cece Kempner, she was one of your closest friends, right? and she was the one that prepared you, as you said, for this when you went. I think what it, you got like a four hundred dollar Europe trip together, you know, as a young working guy, and and she told you find beautiful things. It's not the price or the or things like this. It will be the the memories that these things will exactly. ev- almost like an icon. Exactly. No, she she was an amazing woman, and she really was my first mentor, and and she believed in me when. I don't even understand why, quite honestly, because, again, I was about 20 years old, uh, and she was well into her 60s then. Uh, but she believed I had a talent, and somehow, not being clairvoyant, she felt I was going to have a great career. And she really was spot on. Uh, and she said, you must buy one beautiful thing on every trip, because you're going to travel a lot. And she said, the best thing about the traveling you will may- take is that somebody else will be paying for it. So go for it. Buy one beautiful thing. It doesn't have to be expensive, but with your taste, your eye, it's going to be beautiful. And that that, that's, that was the lesson. It's interesting. In the beginning of the book, you talk uh, you you say that you grew up in a totally dysfunctional uh, <laughs> Italian family that helped set the stage, you know, and, and helped you appreciate what would happen before. I mean, my sense is that you had a close knit family, and yet you talk about how your dad was never really that present that he was he he worked and worked and worked i mean i, I wonder cuz you you describe yourself as shy at times and not great in crowds and yet you seem to have this forceful personality i mean few people can uh, wrangle joan rivers and you're one of them this strange i mean i i wonder was there something about that beautiful and yet dysfunctional Italian family that created both roots and wings. I mean, did it give you certain assets? But yeah, so were there things missing in your heart, in your life, where that enabled you to have this sort of relational dynamism? Because it seemed like, at least for, especially from a father figure, that was not fully present when you were growing up. Now, I mean, look, what you're touching on is incredibly significant in my life. And that's, a, you may not believe this, but I honestly, about a month ago, started writing a book about more that, what you're talking about. Uh, But to try to answer you quickly, uh, because I'm telling you there's hours, uh, you know, I didn't have a father figure. Uh, Very honestly, my mother was the mistress of a very wealthy man uh, who was married and had four children. And then he kept my mother who we had four children with. So he had two families going at one time. Uh, but I never, me and my sister never knew any of this until I was, I guess I was about 18 or 19 when I found out. Uh, but you can imagine, number one, that uh, you had, in those days, we were very independent as young people. 
you know, I don't know if it was the culture of the family or the culture of the times, but, you know, uh, I, I went to school during the day. I came home and I got dinner started because my mother was working. Uh, but you didn't know that that was something unique. Saturday and uh, mostly Saturdays, my sister and I spent the whole day cleaning the house and doing laundry because uh, my mother worked. So you became very strong and very independent. Uh, I, I guess that was what I, I went to a psychiatrist once and he said, you know, I always thought it was the most amazing statement. He said, you know, I have to tell you now that I know your whole life story and everything, I think it's amazing you're alive. <laughs> and I, I started laughing and I looked at him like, oh, my God. And he said, well, that's it. That's exactly it. You have a great sense of humor and your u- sense of humor is what really got you to where you are today. It saved you. Uh, so I look, I, I always say I'm like one of the luckiest guys. I'm not going to tell you it's been easy, but God knows it's been eventful. <laughs> <laughs> now, you spent three years with the Benedictines. I mean, you, you were living a monk's existence. I mean, it, it, yep. it, we're, and then you, you know, of course, most monks go right into retail. Uh, and high end. Re- <laughs> I mean, that's just, I see that all the time. I, what, I mean, what, what were you happy in, 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 among the Benedictines? I mean, how'd you get there and why'd you leave? Well, I got there because I uh, went to a uh, Catholic school that was ra- uh, run by uh, Franciscan monks. Uh, and the Franciscans are very different than the Benedictines, uh, you know, without going into the whole thing. Uh, the Benedictines are monastic, and it's really a much more disciplined, more serious. Uh, I, the serious is unfair in a way. The Franciscans are more the out there. They're out in the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, not not even that. They, they're much more contemplative. Okay. Uh, uh, without a doubt. But also, this particular order had a connection to missionary work. Okay. And of course, I had this, you know, I was a young boy, and I had this great thing about I was going to be a missionary and work with lepers and people and that kind of thing. Uh, and that's how I ended up there. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. But to answer your question, it was the most glorious three years of my life, without a doubt. And believe it or not, I uh, go back about two or three times a year. Recently, I'd say in the last eight years, six years. Uh, some of the monks are still there that were there when I was 18 years old, if you could believe that. And didn't you design uh, banners that they still use? Yeah. God, did I write that in the book? I, I think I, 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 that is the research. I, I, I don't know if that was in the book or if I found that just doing my own research. But yeah. I was always creative, uh, not even knowing I was creative. And I hadn't gone to the monastery in maybe 30 years, maybe more. And then finally went back about eight years ago. And sure enough, the head uh, monk, the prior was there. And I said, I don't know if you even remember me. And he was so sweet. And he's still there, Brother John. And he said, remember you? He said, Joe, every uh, Easter, uh, Easter week, he said, I don't know if you remember when you were here, you made these big banners that hung from the church uh, ceiling uh, for Passover, uh, for Pentecost. And uh, he said, every time I would walk into the chapel, I think, Joe Sissio, there's Joe Sissio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I was knocked over when he said that. But I'm going to be there at Christmas. I just called and, you know, uh, firmed up some dates. And I've done it for the last couple of years. I just, not that it's anything extraordinary, but it's extraordinary. So three years, this is the high point. And at what point does it cease to be the high point? Well, I, I was dealing with a lot of inner conflict. 
uh, and you got to remember, this was a very different time. This was in the early 60s. Uh, and I was struggling with my own sexuality. Uh, and uh, I can be a very serious person. I think I'm a very honest person. Uh, and what I was struggling with was, my again, my sexuality. And at some point, I all of a sudden felt, you know what? I'm living a lie. You know, I'm gay. You can't be gay and be a monk. You know, back then you couldn't. Uh, and I thought, you can't live a lie. You'll go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> you were a serious guy. No, it's the truth. I mean, I, you know, and so I thought, you can't do this. You got to go out into the world. And that's what I did. And and I left. I didn't want to leave, but I thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, But I don't regret a minute of being there. Uh, it was incredible. It was just absolutely probably the best experience in my life by far. And then you go and go to art school, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into retail, the retail world. I, w I was petrified when I came out because I knew I had to make a living. Uh, obviously, I went to my parent, uh, mother's home uh, and at least had a bed and whatever. <laughs> uh, but I didn't know how I was going to support myself. And now I'm, you know, about 20. Uh, and I went to school, back to school, where a counselor, I had great relationships in school, and I went to one of my great counselors, and I said, I don't know what to do with myself, you know, what am, how am I going to make a living, or whatever. And she said, gee, you're always very creative, Joe. Why don't you go into window display? I had no idea what window display was. And, you know, you got to remember also, appreciate it wasn't the time of computers and the internet. And uh, she somehow researched it, and she found a school in New York called the Pan American School of Art that had a window display course. And uh, the short of it is I enrolled. Uh, it was a class of about 50 or 60 students, uh, unknown to me at the time. The school had a relationship with Lord & Taylor uh, where they would uh, uh, sort of, you know, give or however you say it, uh, students that were good to work at Lord & Taylor around Christmas time when they needed extra help in the window department. And I was one of two students in the class, the two top students, me and this guy, Neil. Uh, and we, the, the head of the school came to me and said, you know, look, we have this. Would you want to do it? You get paid and you get credit. I thought, my God, you get paid. That's all I had to know. That was great. <laughs> and uh, went to Lord & Taylor. Uh, I was a schlepper, as Neil was. You know, we were there to sweep the floor to run out and get coffee and iced tea for the different decorators, to be at their beck and call. Uh, I thought it was the most fabulous thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it, it doesn't exist today, quite honestly, this kind of thing. But Windows then, especially on Fifth Avenue, it really was show business. I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating to when Salvatore Dali, and I didn't know who the hell Salvatore Dali was, uh, it come, is in the window drawing on a back wall, or Valentino, who I did not know who he was, comes in as tying sashes around an evening dress. Those are the kind of things that were every day. But I didn't know that. I just thought, wow, this is exciting. This is really show business. Yeah, you say in the book that, 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 that you know, the re great retailers, these huge retail stores in places like New York, created this theatrical environment through which shopping was an enchanting experience. And that, 
does not seem to exist. I mean, that seems like the golden age of retail, where now it seems like that that those are that it's a it's almost like a lost art form. It's almost like like the movies and the the golden age of the movies, right? The seventies, early eighties. Everyone went to movies now. Like people just go to see Iron Man two hundred and six or what? You know, like there's not most people just don't go to the movies as much anymore. Is it have we lost something in this? In the- oh, this uh, you, you're absolutely right. Honestly, uh, it doesn't exist. But what's even sadder that it was never needed more than it's needed now, uh, because of what's going on in retailing. Stores need to be entertainment. They, they have to be an attraction. The only way they're going to be an attraction is two things. One, entertainment and a distinctiveness of merchandising, something they have that others don't have. Today, the big problem is that most stores, all stores, all have the same stuff. Everybody's got Ralph. Everybody's got Tommy. Everybody's got Donna. Everybody's got Calvin. Everybody's got Clinique. Everybody's got Lorna. Everybody's got the same stuff. Uh, and it's all about uh, the uh, operational parts and financial parts of the store and not about the creative and merchandising parts of the store. You need both. Obviously, you got to have strong operational support and strong financial controls. But if you remember then, all those stores were run. The number one person, the CEO of the store was a merchant, whether it was Stanley Marcus or Adam Gimble or Dorothy Schaefer or... Mildred Custom, they were uh, uh, Geraldine Stutz, who made Bendel's incredible with the street of shops. They were all merchants. Merchants will take a risk if they're number one. Today, all those uh, heads of stores are either operational or financial people. When operational and financial people, just by the nature of who they are, it doesn't make them bad. They don't take risk. It's the bottom line all they think about. They're not merchants. They don't see something and say, gee, I, I, I could do this shirt in 10 colors. And that would make an incredible wall in my men's department. Or, you know, like we did in Macy's in the, the 70s, did a towel wall of 18 colors. Nobody had ever done that before with field crisp. But a merchant won't do that today because they're usually number two or three in the ranking of authority and they're afraid to make a mistake. If you're number one, usually you're not afraid of making a mistake. You just want to minimize your mistake. Yeah, I mean, so, you, you had the, you struck up this friendship with Bill Blass, who gave you this wonderful drawing of these birds that are amazing. But you, I mean, I, I it struck me that you're an executive at Macy's at the time, right? And and you guys were doing a four room town display, and and this was a linen display, and this was huge. I mean, there's this cocktail party, and it's 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 an event, and it's cosmopolitan. There's all this energy. Like, you're right, like because you have it, and maybe somebody else doesn't, and there's a different. There's a whole, and 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 it's it's. I'm reading it. And I'm like, this is something out of like Mad Men or something, or these. I mean, <laughs> they, they, this is an exciting uh, culture to work in, and I I wouldn't guess that. Is the experience of people today in, in 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 the retail? I mean, would you would you even advise somebody to go into it today? Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know that that was a lot of luck. I don't know where I got the guts, and certainly I had the passion because it was not normal that what you just described at all. Uh, I was only there a couple of weeks, and the public relations people came to me and said, "Well, we're going to have a Bill Bless co- a cocktail party because we're introducing some sheets." And I didn't know Bill uh, then, um, and. Uh, Maybe your people can do drawings and some easels with the fabrics. And I just very politely said yes, and I went back. 
to my people. And I said to myself, there's no way I'm doing easels and drawings and fabric. We're going to do four incredible rooms. It was unheard of. We didn't have the budget for that kind of thing. We didn't have the talent to create, uh, construct them. But I figured it out. I would go in on Saturday and Sunday and upholst furniture and bookcases myself uh, for the room settings. You did what you had to do, but you had to have a passion for making it fabulous. Also, it was a strategy on my part. And I sort of, I swear to you, I look back in awe. How did I get that smart? Uh, because Macy's was very traumatic then. It was a nothing horrible store. <clears throat> uh, then this is before the seller and all that. And it was not lovely. Uh, and I thought, you know what? There's two things you got to do, Cicio. You got to let the organization, Macy's know that there's a new creative guy here that is going to rock their world. You cannot let them think this is just another display person coming in and he'll be out in a year. And you got to let the merchandising market hear that there are great things going on at Macy's. And uh, there's articles on it that were written. It worked brilliantly. But I don't know where I got the guts to do it. I really mean it. But it was a great deal of fun. Yes, I would recommend it today. The problem today is you need the, either you have to be somebody like me, uh, and I only mean that by, I was very gutsy and very passionate, and you need to have the top support to feel endorsed. I didn't really have it then, uh, but I was hired and I was new on the job and I was a good talker. Uh, but once this happened, and the news started coming out and the world was being rocked. All of a sudden, I was a star in Macy's and the top management from the CEO down thought, wow, who is this guy we just hired? And it went on from there. It almost seems like today, a, a person starting off with your kind of energy and chutzpah, you find them in startups, right? Because, because the cult, there's not as many ladders to, to 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 climb or there's climb, yeah i mean the, right. the the culture startup culture seems to be much more capable of, of taking someone like you at a young age and actually unleashing them yeah no i think that's true i think the problem though uh you also hit on something startups to me are incredibly important uh i live in uh litchfield county i don't know if you're familiar with it but it's a very nice county in connecticut and i see stores uh, and open and close like clockwork. Uh, it's amazing to me. And I'm always upset because I'll go into a store when it first opens. And I can tell you within three minutes if this store is going to be here a year from now. Uh, unless they get a brain transplant, it probably won't be. Because today, for some strange reason, people... They have this great idea. I'm going to do, I, I honestly, I just went into a little bakery uh, last weekend uh, in which, well, I shouldn't say where, I guess, uh, but I went into this little bakery and uh, I went in and I thought, oh my God, it's nice looking, you know, good decor, all that. This thing is, if it's here a year from now, it'll be a miracle because it was so badly merchandised. And what I'm saying is people don't do a P&L. They do, before they even sign the lease, they don't sit down and you don't have to go hire a lawyer. You don't have to hire an accountant. The accountant would help, but you could do it yourself. You sit down and you write everything that it, this adventure is going to cost you. You know, what's the rent? What's the anticipated uh, energy cost? What's the salary cost? What's the if advertising cost? If that's and You put down every expense you can think of that you might encounter. Then you put down how much volume you have to do 
to turn a profit to pay for those expenses. But people don't do that today, which I don't understand. Then they don't know how to merchandise it. This little shop, I swear to you, I went in and they had a lovely vitrine, two vitrines on the counter. And there was a dish, about an eight inch dish in uh, two of them on the top shelf. One dish had four donuts. The other dish had four cupcakes or muffins. Uh, and I'm looking at it, This looks like starvation time here. I mean, when you go into a bakery, you want to be emotionally, uh, you know, moved. Uh, and I looked and in the back, I could see they had those typical bakery racks with trays of muffins and trays of uh, uh, donuts. And I they, and a young, adorable couple in their 30s, I'm sure. And I said to the woman, I said, look, I said, I, I just want to tell you something. I'm in retailing. I understand this. Uh, please don't think I'm being critical or a know-it-all. I want you to do well. And I told her, you know, what she was doing wrong. But they don't need, you know, you shouldn't have to wait for Joe Sissio to fall in there and do it right. You got to go out and look at the competition. If you're going to be in the bakery business, you better look at every damn bakery within, you know, 20 miles of your location. You got to do your due diligence. You got to do your P&L. People don't do it today. And unfortunately, then they lose. I mean, they lose their investment. Do, do you often give people unsolicited advice like that? Constantly. Constantly. Every, my close friends say I'm crazy. Joe, you're not getting paid for that. You give too much information. Yeah, and it seems like some people, I mean, it's a hard thing, right, to receive unsolicited advice because it, it conjures up in someone that they're doing something wrong and, 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 and people are fragile, right? I mean, it's hard for people to know. That's true. That's very, I think that's accurate. When I was talking to this woman in the bakery, I said, you know, I uh, referenced the retreats. Says, oh yes. My husband doesn't like these retreats. He wants to change them. I said, tell your husband he's wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with these vitrines. It's the presentation of the product inside. That's the problem. Don't go spend money on new vitrines. Present the goods better. You should be a. Re- you just, should have your own reality show where you just go into retail shops and just kind of <laughs> make them over. You know, it could it could be a show. That could it be really a show. No, you you made the transition. Uh, you know, from you from being a, a retail executive and and to, and to becoming an interior designer. And you you tell this great story where you're working with Joan Rivers. You you connect with Joan Rivers, and she wants to buy your house, which is amazing to me that you've got this beautiful house. And she 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 writes an offer, and you're just like, I mean, you you she asked you to make an offer. You make an, a, a real offer finally after she pesters you. She's like, that's crazy. Eventually, she buys what she says is the ugliest house in Connecticut. It looks like a Benihana. She says, perfect. Yep. And she asked you to make it over. And, and, and you do. I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> now, it was, I, I am not, people for years, honestly, have asked me to, uh, not asked me, but why don't you be an interior designer? Why don't you be a decorator? I, number one, I love retailing too much, and I don't want to be a decorator, or never did. I don't, I don't think I am the type that has the right, first of all, I'm very decisive. I'm very quick. Uh, but I also don't feel that you have the right to go in and tell somebody how to live. You should be living with this kind of thing, or you shouldn't have that. You live any way you want. As long as you're happy, that's fine. But uh, I have had many homes and apartments on my own, and I love doing them. I think I have pretty good taste and whatever. Uh, And I have helped many friends. So when Joan came to the house the first time, 
uh, and uh, she obviously wasn't going to buy the house, but she called me because she loved the look of the house. And that's when she said she bought Benihana and you've got to do my house. And I said, no, John, I'm sorry. I don't have an organization. I don't have a staff. I can't go doing houses for a living, uh, whatever, whatever. Obviously, as I think I say in the book, uh, the word no doesn't uh, exist in Jolene's vocabulary. Uh, and thank God, uh, I finally ended up, and I think I tell everything in this book, uh, about how I agreed to do it and everything. Uh, and it was the best thing that ever happened. And I loved it. I really did love it, but I loved it because number one, Joan had complete faith in me. You had to lay out some ground rules too. Yeah, that, that we exactly. could walk away from but, either of us could sort of, I mean, you're two strong personalities. This is the unstoppable exactly. force meeting the immovable yeah. object here. Yeah, no question. You're absolutely right. And that's why I structured no contract, because I, I know she's strong. I didn't know her that well at that point, but I know she's strong and I know me. Uh, and I said, I'll do this. And I gave her the, uh, you know, the conditions. And I said, the most important one is we have no contract. If you hate me at some point, it's goodbye. And if I hate you at some point, I don't think I used the word hate, but if we call it quits, we call it quits. And, you know, that's what it is. Uh, and I did do that once. I don't know if I talk about that in the book anymore. Yeah. You uh, said you had like two breakups, like, and then you yeah, kissed and made up a, and kind of eventually carried. And you say you, the funniest things in that section of the book, you said, the first was that you said you, you, you saw the house and she says, yeah, this was designed by a Frank Lloyd Wright student. Too bad he didn't study more. <laughs> right. No, I said, Oh, you said that. You said that. Yeah. That. I said too Yeah, I said a oh, pity he didn't study more. <laughs> the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And then, the other, she loved that. The other thing you're saying it was so funny like you're like haggling with these contractors and getting a good deal and everything and she would pull up in these audacious outfits in this limousine and you're like you're killing me here. Can't you? Don't you have anything plain Jane you could wear while these guys I've just negotiated these the price with these guys. I swear to you, that is so accurate. It was so hysterical. She'd pull up like a rock star, these white stretch limousines, get out in her four-inch Milano Blahnik shoes, red fox coat, Hermes bag, the whole nine years. And she was very sweet to everybody. It's not that she was grand or anything like that, but she certainly had the, you know, had the wardrobe to go with it. And finally, I don't remember anymore, after a couple of visits, I pulled her over to the side. I said, Joan, don't you own a goddamn cloth coat? <laughs> <laughs> and she looked at, why? And I said, because I'm wrestling these guys for dollars. And you're walking here looking like you're the Charvaran's mistress. <laughs> and, and, and she said, you know something? She said, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I said, you know what else, Joan? When you come up Route 7 through New Milford, there's a big Dunkin' Donuts that you pass. Stop in there and get a few dozen donuts. And bring donuts to these guys, and you walk around and give them. Do you know what it is for a construction worker to be handed donuts by Joan Rivers? It was great because she was an extremely good, generous, loving person, and they loved her. And she, of course, she always had everybody laughing. But I wanted her to personalize it, and for them to see the real Joan Rivers, not the fur coat and the stretch limousine. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? 
If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You say, and that when you're telling that story about her house, you say so you said something that took me back to was it Michelangelo that said he looked at this slab of marble and said, "There's an angel in there. I've got to set free." You say something similar. You're, you're looking at this. You say, "My biggest problem in these situations is that I'm really good at looking past the ugly and envisioning the lovely. I want to attack, even if the place isn't mine. My impulse is always." to make it right. You say, I'm the guy who would go in and rearrange a hotel room, sometimes even the lobby. I mean, is that the kind of thing that either I, it makes people, I, I can imagine people either love or, love or hate that. Sorry. I, I, I can imagine people could love or hate that about you. Like, I mean, it, it, I would guess most of the people that become these dear friends love that, to, love that ability to get past the, the surface pleasantry and to really say, hey, this, this should be this. Well, I think, you know, that's interesting you say that. What does happen, number one, I, believe it or not, I am not very social. So if I agree to go to your house for dinner, I really have to like you a lot. And hopefully you like me. Uh, but what I do know has happened over the years, especially with newer relationships, people get intimidated easily. And they're almost reluctant to invite Joe because they're scared to death what Joe's going to see. Not what he said, because I would never walk in and say, have you lost your mind? What are you doing with that? And whatever. That's not That would never happen. But they are very reluctant because they're insecure, which I think is ridiculous anyway, but that does happen. People are reluctant to invite you. But most of my friends, and I've had many friends, will call me uh, and say, you know, we're thinking uh, of buying a house. We've picked out a couple. Would you come look at them with us? And I say, of course. And and I am good at it. And I love looking at houses. Hmm. I love looking at houses. And... Uh, you know, I would just walk around and I know within a second and I've been in situations where I say, forget it. This house has absolutely no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Get out of here. You know, and I just had very good friends that have a major estate in Bedford 
And many years ago, the husband called me and said, Joe, we have a house that we're thinking of buying and we want you to look at it. And we're driving there. He took me from the city and he uh, is driving me up there. And in the conversation, he said, you know, we had seen another house, but we don't think that that we love the problem, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, now we go see the house that they are going to buy. And I'm walking around this house and you have to look at a lot of things. It's not just the house itself. You have to look at the grounds, the location, the, the adjacencies, all those things. And anyway, uh, I hated the house immediately. Uh, and I said to him, I said, where's that other house that you said that you liked, but you weren't interested? And we got the realtor on the same trip. We went by to look at that house. And I said, John, you're crazy. If you don't buy this friggin' house, I will. This is perfect. This is divine. It needs a lot of work, but now you have a jewel when this is done. And uh, lo and behold, they ended up buying the second house, and which is hysterical. And just, I swear to you, like last week or so, because uh, they're both elderly, the house just went on the market for a gazillion times what they paid for it. But it is absolutely enchanting, this house. So I was happy to see that and that I could help somebody, help a friend. You tell a story that you have the section about Bruce Binder, who was the Macy's European fashion director. And it's just, just this... I mean, the photos you have of him, I mean, he's, he's just this sort of, you can tell he's, there's, there's a lot of man there. There's a lot of, he's a lot of style, yeah, a lot of style. And you talk about, he had this Jewish kind of French accent and he would, he would, he had this way of getting you guys into first class on flights and he would just, uh, and he gave you this beautiful painting that sits, I think in your living room with these two chairs, but you tell this moving story. And I guess this is in the early nineties where it, it, he came in and said, I, I'm ready to take the HIV test, and he took it, and it was positive. And and you talk about not knowing what to say, and you should take it again. I mean that. I mean, was that the the era? I mean, did you have many of those conversations with? It was a, it was the most horrific time uh, that I ever lived through. Uh, and I had that a lot because now I was kind of a big shot over all the creative areas at Macy's. And I had a lot of, uh, most of the people that reported to me were gay, uh, major majority, I guess, were men and not that it made a lot of difference, but regardless, I, you have no idea. I think I say in the book, I'm not sure every night I, when I went to bed, I would pray truth. I would pray, and there was a list, I don't remember anymore, but a list about 10 guys that I were ill with AIDS. And every night, and I felt compelled when I would say my prayer for them to call out their name. Mm. And if it was John or Brian or Bruce or whatever, I would call their name out in the prayer. And whatever, week by week, night by night, the list got shorter and shorter and shorter till the list was no more. It was horrific. It was absolutely horrific time. Uh, and Bruce, Bruce was like a brother. Uh, and you know, he used to come to our house maybe two, three weekends a month to Connecticut on the weekend. And he was hysterical and he was just really, I, I used to love him because he was virtually this nice Jewish kid from the Bronx who thought he was French. <laughs> uh, it was hysterical, you know, and he could be very grand and all that. So I'd love to tease him and everything, but he was such a good human being. If Bruce had just hung on, you know, a year more, perhaps, he would be alive today. I have no doubt. Yeah, because it seems that 
treatment and education. I mean, it's not that, I mean, it, there's just, we know so much more about the disease. Treatment is advanced. People are so much more informed about uh, STDs in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it, it, yeah. I mean, it's the cusp of the age where before those things happen, right? Yeah, no, no, no question. But you don't know what these people went through, you know, between uh, they're just living and how they were so, you know, uh, what's the right word? Uh, everybody was petrified of anybody with AIDS. So if you lived in the same building, people were crazy. Uh, I know somebody here, Name nameless or knew somebody, uh, a very, very famous decorator owned a beautiful estate here on the lake and he died of AIDS. And somebody very, very wealthy bought the estate because of the location and the view and they ripped down the entire house because he died of oh AIDS. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that? But that's what it was like. And, and if you knew somebody with AIDS, you most people, unless they were really uh, extraordinary, you know, you didn't touch somebody, you didn't hug somebody, you didn't, you know, it was horrible. It was just horrible. And there's nothing more uh, welcomed or more needed than when you're very ill to have somebody hold your hand or give you a hug or just some human physical contact. Uh, and they were deprived of that almost on a regular basis. It was. It, it, I can't think of anything that was worse. I really can't. It was horrible. I see those faces, so many of those uh, young people in my head all the time. There's another story in there about Philip, uh, Philip Lorchet. Uh I said he looks like he's posing for Hee Haw. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you say he loves the camera. Yeah, he's got this long hair. Yeah, I, it, 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 the, yeah. the picture of him is fantastic. I mean, it is fantastic. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous guy. He was hysterical and sweet. And, you know, he died. He eventually died. And I talked to him the day he died. He was Then he was in Dallas, but I talked to him every single day. Uh, but the sweetest guy in the world. And I, and I have things here in the house that Philip left me in his will. And, you know, I, I have a mirror in my uh, entrance to my bedroom that Philip sent me. I didn't even know he I was in his will. Uh, and every day, I, I don't know how many times I walk by that mirror, I think of Philip. You tell another story I was struck by about a guy named David Leong, who you gave a kind of opportunity to, uh, to uh, was it like thermal suits or something? He had this really interesting knack for design. And and you weren't trying to do high volume with those necessarily, but you, you thought this will bring people in. It's a, it's an eye catcher. It's a, and you have, you're, you're friends with him for like 15 years. And what struck me is, you see, I know, I know, I didn't know what became of him in the age of Facebook and social media. That doesn't seem to happen as often, but this was this close friendship in which you don't, and you have these beautiful books as, as you come into your house, you see this little beautiful leather book bound set. They're gorgeous. Uh, and yet, he it's one of these friends, the time just, fortune just is lost. It's, it's sad. That's accurate. And David was a very, very special human being. And I couldn't do the book without writing about him. Uh, and there's so much in this house that reminds me of David Daly. Uh, we were inseparable for almost 15 years. Uh, and I adored him, and then we just seemed to grow in very different directions. Uh, I'm not saying one was right or one was wrong. If I had to say it, I probably would say I was wrong, uh, because uh, to me, everything was career and working. I was always a workaholic. I, I was always, you know, very passionate about my responsibility, and everything else took second place. David was the reverse. 
David was probably or is a much better human being than me. Uh, but it, truly one of the most glorious human beings I ever had the pleasure of having in my life, without a doubt. Now, you, you tell a story also, you by chance, you there's this event, I think this was for, um, was this for Macy's or for... Um, Wait, or was this when you were at iMagnet? You you have this event, and they bring in Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, that was Magnet. And 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 you wind up on a flight with her, and and having this lovely engagement with Audrey Hepburn. I was dying. Yeah, you said that. I mean, this is unbelievable. I mean, this is this is you know, I, 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 people live their whole lives for a moment like this. I, if you ever want, I would lend you, but you have to promise to send it back to me. I have a DVD that I just actually very recently had converted to a DVD from a VHS of that actual Valentine Ball show of Givenchy and Audrey surprising him uh, coming down the runway. Uh, but I was just lucky. As I think I said in the book, in my teens, I sat in the theater on Saturday all alone and saw her come to the top of the stairs in My Fair Lady and was knocked out by her uh, and said to myself, someday I'm going to marry somebody that looks like that. Uh, obviously, that wasn't meant to be. Uh, <laughs> what's so incredible is that you fast forward how many years? It's got to be 30 years or something. And you become very good friends with that person. I think that's one of the great things about life and living that that can happen. Uh, but she was divine. She was really divine. And she was one of the very few celebrities that I ever got the pleasure of having a relationship with that was exactly off the screen like she was on. She was the same person. You know, she was kind. She was sweet. She was loving. She was bright. She was caring. She had it all. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, she died way too early. Yeah, and she gave you this lovely painting, and she gave your son Christopher these UNICEF ragdolls. It's just beautiful, right. beautiful sentiment. You know, you say in that section of the book, I, I, I was struck by this that you, you, you've, you say you've been privileged to know lots of celebrities. You say these encounters were always interesting and often very enjoyable. Yes, on a few occasions they could be a little disappointing, but to this day, no one has ever come close to Audrey's loveliness. What did disappointing look like? Just you would find people that were very into themselves, uh, and it was all about them, uh, or they were very stingy, or, uh, you know, again, it was all about them. And, uh, you know, I was not friends with uh, Ethel Merman, uh, but uh, I can tell you as a young man, uh, I was taken to see. Uh, Hello, Dolly, when Ethel Merman was starring in it. And I was knocked over by her performance and the show and everything. And so we decided to wait at the stage door to get her autograph. Uh, and when we first got to the stage door, there's maybe 15, 20 people waiting for an autograph. And little by little waiting for her, it got down to three people, <laughs> me, a friend of mine and somebody else. And finally, and the limousine was there. So you knew she was coming out eventually. Uh, and eventually she came out and, you know, we're young people, we're kids. And, uh, you know, we said, oh, Miss Merman, can we just get your autograph? You were so great and everything. I don't give autographs and I'm, I got to go home. I'm tired. And just got in the, how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. How could you be so nasty uh, to your public? With Joan Rivers, I spent 
a lot of time with Joan. We'd walk down Madison Avenue. We'd go shopping in New Preston, Connecticut. People would come up to her all the time. We'd go to a little coffee shop in Marbledale, Connecticut, uh, just to grab something quick. And people would come up to her constantly. And she uh, was as gracious to them as if they were a member of the family. She was amazing. You know, we'd be in a restaurant and somebody would come up to a waitress and say, oh, Miss Rivers, I love those beads. I love your jewelry. Your beads are so beautiful. And she'd say, really? And she'd stand up, take the beads off her neck and put it around theirs. That's beautiful. You know, that was Joan. So I only like nice people. I don't like difficult, selfish people. Were you at Joan's funeral? No. No, unfortunately, I was traveling. You know, I, I, I'm a huge Howard Stern fan, and and, and her daughter asked yeah, Howard. She loved Howard Stern. Yeah, he loved her, and he said she was just, yeah. I mean, he when she yeah. when he when she died, he was beside himself and he could not believe that he was asked to do the eulogy. And he was just, I mean, that was one of the most moving honors of his life. I mean, I was always impressed that she, because Joan was not, uh, number one, didn't suffer fools well uh, and had very strong opinions. And she liked Howard a lot. I mean, you know, one of the great things is we would spend almost every Friday or and Saturday uh, sometimes Sunday afternoon at the house, you know, eating and gossiping and whatever. Uh, and she'd tell you stories or Rex Reed would come over, who was sensational. Rex is really one of the funniest people on the planet. I don't know if he knows that, but he is. <laughs> uh, and whatever. And these stories. But she loved Howard Stern. She really did. I was always surprised. Yeah, he said, you know, when I was nobody or she would do the show before I was before he had sort of a wide celebrity respect she recognized his talent she really he felt this debt of yeah. gratitude for how kind and good she was to him i mean she he really yeah. when he talks about her to this day oh. he really uh, uh, it's got to make him a very good person oh uh, yeah yeah he's, uh, an, I, he's an interesting guy you know I, I don't know i mean i don't know him either but i just i feel like i know him from listening to the radio <laughs> it's weird yeah, how people no, are like that you know she liked she also i remember her always uh talk about bill maher oh yeah because uh, yeah. i I was never a big Bill Maher fan. Fine, you know, but she she would say, Joe, you have no idea how smart he is and how talented he is. He is an extraordinary person. And look, if Joan says so, I take it. I like it. that. I gotta, you, you, ought to, uh, you ought to come up, your next book ought to be People Joan Rivers Endorse. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not a bad idea either. I don't know that it was such a, although she had a lot of passion. She was extraordinary. She really, it's such a horror. Because Joan also, you know, she was very smart. Uh, and uh, she would never take chances with her uh, health. And she, you know, was very diligent about getting the right care and everything. So that freak thing that happened uh, should have never happened. But she, she, I was having a cosmetic surgery done uh, and I always stayed at her apartment. Uh, and the night before we had dinner and she said, well, uh, I'll, I'll meet you tomorrow morning because I had an early appointment, like seven o'clock. And uh, she said, I'll meet you. And uh, I said, no, 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 John, I'm fine. I don't need anybody. I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'll be fine. No, no, no. I said, John, forget it. Not going to happen. Hmm. So uh, I don't remember now, 6.30 in the morning, I was all ready, and I went to the door to go out in the hall and get the elevator. Who's standing in the hallway but Joan in a trench coat? Uh, <laughs> she said, I'm, I said, what the hell are you doing? She said, I'm going with you. I said, Jesus, don't worry about it. I'm going with you. I have a car waiting downstairs. I said, Joan, the guy is, the doctor's about six hours, uh, six blocks from here. We don't need a car. <laughs> no, no, no. I, Joan loved her little luxuries. 
uh, and she had a, uh, her driver to take her six blocks. And she went in, and you can imagine a doctor, you know, I'm walking in, I'm just a patient, and I'm walking in with Joan Rivers, you know, and she said, I just want to observe the, I forget what she called it, but like the pre-op <laughs> or whatever. And uh, they sit you in a chair and whatever, and she sat in the corner, perfectly quiet, which was unusual for Joan, and watched every detail. And after about a half hour, the doctor left the room, and I looked over at her, and she looked over at me, and I said, well, she said, this guy is good. This guy is good. That was Dr. George Baraka. A uh, great, great surgeon. Uh, but Joan was that kind of person. If you were her friend, she would walk over hot coals for you. So how this thing happened is just a heartbreak. I, I, I honestly I, thought, I really did think that she was going to come out of the coma. I, mm-hmm. I thought the worst, I could see her. Very Joan. She Maybe she won't be able to walk. She'll be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, but she will perform. I could see her performing on stage in a wheelchair the way Bette Midler did in when she had that one-man show years ago. Uh, I just was positive she would come out of it, and it just wasn't meant to be. She introduced you to Prince Charles. She did. Yeah. Now, this yeah. is so interesting to me. As I'm reading about your life, and you, you, he has this sort of organic company that the Dutchies, I think it's called Dutchie Original. Dutchie Original, and it, it, it's it sort of subsidizes a lot of his philanthropic work. And like, you're the guy to come in and sort of evaluate Dutchie. I mean, like, is that intimidating, daunting? I mean, that you describe in the book that being nervous meeting him. I mean, I, I was nervous meeting him. I mean, he's royalty. And they also make you more nervous because they tell you, you know, they prep you and you, you don't put your hand out unless he puts his hand out. You don't call him this first. You call him that first. You don't speak unless he speaks. I mean, all this nonsense, but that's their way. Fine. So, but it makes you more nervous. Uh, but I wasn't nervous about the relationship of why I was there or the purpose of why I was there, because honestly, for about two years, they kept saying to me, the prince wants to meet you, the prince wants to meet you. Uh, are you coming over to London? In other words, they didn't want to pay for the trip. Uh, and, 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 you know, the royals don't know for money. Forget about money. You know, they, they don't even have a concept how it's made, uh, let alone used. Uh, but anyway, I said, look, I said, if he wants me, I'd be happy to go. I'm not going to charge him uh, for consulting, but he, uh, they're going to pay for the trip in the hotel. Uh, and that went on for two years. And honestly, about every six months, I'd get the same story and I'd get the same answer. And finally, after two years, Robert called me, Robert Higdon. And he said he was head of the Prince's Foundation in America. And he said, the prince went crazy this morning and wants Sissio. He said, get me Sissio. I got to talk to him. Now, Dutchie Original was a very big business. You would be very impressed how big it was in volume. And it was, you know, an international, uh, as you said, organic and uh, natural food uh, line uh, and mostly uh, baked goods. Uh, and it was being run badly and it wasn't making any money. And for the amount of volume that it was, that was shocking. Uh, and the short of it is that, that one T I, I will cherish always with him because truly, uh, we were supposed to spend 45 minutes together. We spent about an hour and a half in the garden of High Grove having tea and just talking. I, I talk no differently than I'm talking right now to you. I'm very honest. I did all my due diligence about the brand and the retail of the brand before. So I was very prepared. 
And I was very honest with him. And uh, finally, at the end, as we left, we're leaving, and he shook my hand. And Joe, Joe, would you do this? Would you actually do this for us? And I said, Your Highness, after this time with you today, I would weed your garden. You know, it was the most extraordinary time. And he laughed because he's quite extraordinary. People, I totally was shocked. I was not prepared uh, because the press really did not do him justice. Yeah, you said he, you, you were in the book. He's just a very down to earth and delightful. He's very, he's very funny. He's very down to earth. He's very compassionate. He's very intelligent. He was on sustainability of the planet way before anybody got on the bandwagon. Uh, he's very sweet. He, he had a teapot uh, that he was pouring the tea from. And I'm a very, very good observer and I'm very good at detail. Uh, and I finally said, I said, Your Highness, I must tell you, that is the most beautiful teapot I've ever seen. I've never seen one quite like it. And he took it and held it. And he said, oh, Joe, I'm so pleased that you noticed that. My grandmother gave me that, and I so adore it. Thank you. But that says something about him and his grandmother. And you could you tell know, by the that, way he handled it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. And also, you in the book, you write about Princess Grace, that that she and she gave you this. You developed a relationship with her. She gave you this beautiful, it's like wildflowers. And, yeah, and no, she, it's there's this collage. Little, this collage. And there's this little GK at the at the bottom, Grace Kelly. She she actually signs it in three places. One GK, I, I can't remember. One's the, the Princess of Monaco. And it's, it's signed in three different places. But also, I mean, I was an idiot with these kinds of things. And it's very typically me. Uh, because she asked me twice to come uh, and visit with her because she wanted me to see, you know, how she was using the sheets that she had made and because she got ideas when she was at Macy's and she wanted to show me around. Uh, and I, you know, I'm very bad about that kind of thing. Uh, I, I don't believe you take off from work to have a good time. Uh, it just wasn't me. Uh, Betty Davis did. I don't, I don't write about Betty in the book, but Betty did that with me years ago and was upset with me that I wouldn't come and have tea with her. Uh, she had moved and I did a painting for her and sent it to her as a fan. I didn't know her. And then all of a sudden we got to know each other a little bit, but I, I'm not good at that kind of thing. Believe it or not, I'm a very good self-promoter. You may not believe this, but I'm really not. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, you tell a story in the book about a friend of yours, uh, Dr. Peter Rizzo, and you guys are sitting at a dinner or an event together and you said, I want to have a child. And he says, you, you need to go to a psychiatrist and make sure you're okay. Like, where's this motivation come from? You're a driven guy. I mean, I, I was struck as I was reading that. What I mean, what a courageous friend to offer. I mean, that's not easy to receive all the time. I mean, I, I would think something like that. I mean, that's that's a gutsy and loving thing to say. Oh, I thought it was incredible. You had to know Peter. Peter was quite extraordinary. Uh, and when he said that to me, I said, you know what, Peter? I think that makes total sense. But now you have to get me a good psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He did. But he was also the most extraordinary man. Unfortunately, he was murdered uh, a number of years later uh, in a terrible uh, situation. Uh, he, Oh, God, I loved him. I just loved him. And and Christopher, it becomes the love and joy of your life. I mean, your son. You write beautifully about picking him up, and and that was your confirmation, Christopher, the Christ bearer. Yes, yes. And uh, and 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 you give yeah. him the same. And he's just this child that's 
it's like a man child. I mean, he seems he's just talented beyond years. His, and and is a real is your companion. Uh, I exactly. I never felt about Christopher. Maybe in the very first year, maybe. Uh, but after that, I always felt like Christopher was my younger brother. Uh, and we used to travel all over the world together. And he, he was super intelligent, very sophisticated in his own way, much more sophisticated than me. He, he had an incredible taste palette. And he was as happy with caviar as he was with pizza. You know, he wasn't grand or fancy, but he seemed to have it all. Plus that he was incredibly intelligent uh, and gifted both musically and athletically. Uh, so to be with him, you know, we, we'd be in London and we'd come out of uh, Selfridges and he hated to walk. I love to walk. He hated to walk. Chris wanted to know where the car was or the taxi. <laughs> and I said, Chris, we're walking. It's not that far. No, 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 Dad. I'll get it. And he ran out into Oxford Street. I thought he was going to get killed uh, and hailed a cab. He was nine years old. Uh, and uh, he was that kind of kid. You tell a story in the book about Carol Channing and how you'd become friends with her and she got divorced and had no money. And I mean, I, I was really moved because you say that you and Christopher are helping her get her life back on track at age 77. And I mean, getting your life back on track is never easy, but, but the picture of you two caring for this woman who at 77 never imagined she'd have to get things on track. Uh, that, what I mean, what an opportunity to be a friend and also to share with your son. No, it was one. You're right. I mean, she loved Christopher, and then things took a terrible turn. Her husband, they got divorced, and there was many issues there. And she had no money. He had virtually robbed her of every nickel she had, and she wasn't particularly great at the, the financial parts of living. Uh, but she had some very good friends, uh, but she had no money. Uh, and I don't remember how she did it, but she got a sublet, very small apartment on Central Park South at one point. Uh, and again, she had no money. So Chris and I would go up there several nights a week and uh, take her out to dinner and just be with her. But first, believe it or not, we would, you know, I'd brush her hair and I'd get her ready and say, come on, Carol, you got to get dressed. Let's go out, this, that, and the other thing. And we'll, Chris loves uh, muscles, and we'll go have a nice dinner and whatever. And I can honestly, I remember standing there with her in the chair brushing her hair. And she was so sweet and is so sweet. Uh, but she was very vulnerable, and I think she was dramatically hurt by what had happened in her personal life. But then the gods shined on her, and I don't know exactly anymore how it happened, but she discovered she had a cousin who was very, very wealthy, a lovely, lovely gentleman, a good deal older than Carol at the time. And uh, he lived in uh, Palm Springs. Uh, and anyway, the of it is that he came on the scene and he brought her out there and things started to turn for the better. And Carol's still alive. She's, you know, well into her 90s. Uh, but, uh, it was very special and it was great for Christopher. Uh, you know, we went, she did a revival of Hello Dolly uh, in New York. And of course we went and somehow we ended up in the front row, very close to the stage. And there's a scene or something in the, the play where she's got a toy gun, you know, like a pop gun with a string on the cork and whatever, and uh, she comes to the edge of the stage and hands the gun to Christopher. Well, you thought Christopher had done going straight to heaven. I mean, that was, you know, of course, he loved that. I mean, she was that kind of person. 
We were lucky. As I said, we were really lucky. You know, I, the theologian Stanley Harawas, he's at Duke. I, I've heard him say before that a real gift is something you didn't know you needed until someone gives it to you. And, you know, I mean, we, we, we're probably losing that in the Amazon click kind of culture. But, but you, I mean, as you write about these friends and these things that they've given you that, that animate the walls and halls of your house. I mean, it's, it's, it strikes me that, well, two things, maybe both gift giving and friendship are something that are, are lost arts in our culture. Oh, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Uh, you know, I, I often give gifts because I see something that I know somebody will love. Uh, I honestly, I'm going to somebody's house next Saturday and I give a great deal of thought and what I'm going to give someone as a gift, but uh, it's a friend's birthday. Uh, but I have a gift wrapped for a husband uh, because I know he's not expecting anything. That's for sure. Uh, number two, I have a gift wrapped for another couple that's going to be there who are certainly not expecting anything. Uh, but I love them, uh, and I love the surprise and the the endorsement of friendship to be able to do that. But it is an art, and then. There's a, I have downstairs, I have a studio, and I have everybody's dream, I think, is this incredible gift wrap uh, area, you know, with every kind, not every kind, but a, all the papers and ribbons you could dream about. Uh, and I was down there wrapping these gifts, having the best time. And uh, somebody wanted to do a story on gift wrapping, which I've never done. Uh, but there's so many ways of having fun wrapping a gift. And what I was telling somebody just the other day, I said, you know, most people in this country don't understand that you don't have to always have something in a box. You know, if you think about the Europeans, you know, think about a Christmas carol and the gifts that they were carrying. You know, you could buy a fabulous shirt and wrap it in tissue and gift paper and ribbon. Uh, you must never use scotch tape on a gift. <laughs> never. You know, and my friend looked at me like, you're crazy. So he, well, what do you do? I said, what they always did, you wrap it with the paper and then ribbon holds it together. Mm. And when you open the, you pull the ribbon, the whole package should open, you know, but people, all that's, you know, is not common anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I read somewhere that you wrote this book to help bring kindness into the world. I was thinking that of your time spent with the Benedictines, because, you know, originally the Benedictine order, you know, St. Benedict, the world's falling apart, right? And the world as he knew it in late antiquity is falling apart. And he makes these communities where people could produce way more than they needed to, to live and could bless the society around them and could give people a vision of the, of the beauty and and order that could come of life again by by being kind and creative and and so it strikes me that your book is benedictine in that in that sense it, it's this it's this gift to the world saying look look what life could be like if you make space for people and moments like this i i you know obviously i'm very grateful for what you said uh i love hearing that uh i think i am very benedictine i love people. I, I, I am very upset uh, in the state of, uh, you know, the world today. Uh, I know it'll change for the better, but I don't like the hate. I, I, I don't like everybody. I don't care if you're left, right, or wherever the hell you are. Uh, you don't have to be nasty. You don't have to be vicious. You don't have to say horrible things. You don't have to go up to people in restaurants and yell at them while they're having dinner with their family. I mean, what the hell are you thinking? That kind of hate or call for somebody's demise, I don't get it. I just don't get yeah, because it. Because you've, you, you've sat with people, I mean, of all political, I mean, you, you've sat and had 
dinner with Henry Kissinger and his wife. Henry Kissinger. Oh, they're close friends. Yeah, Henry Kissinger's wife wrote the forward to your book. Right. No, they're very close friends. They're, they're, they live almost walking distance from here. I had the finest people you could possibly want to know. Uh, but uh, I've seen a lot, uh, and God willing, I'll still see a lot more. But it's the quality of the people, not the quantity. I don't give a darn who they're notoriety or what their notoriety is or this, that, and the other thing. I really don't. I mean, I have friends, you know, the most glorious woman lives right down the road from here, uh, Rose. Uh, you know, uh, she's hysterical. She's the finest human being ever. She has a key to my house. Uh, when Rose comes into the house, the dogs go nuts. They adore her. They just adore her. And I'll, often she'll come over for tea. You know, we'll sit and talk on a Sunday afternoon and whatever. And I know Rose loves uh, shortbread cookies. So I always have shortbread cookies in the house. And we just sit. Rose is just a lovely housewife uh, living down the road. You don't have to be famous. You just have to be good. You, you've spent your life doing some interesting things. I mean, what's next? What's what's what? Do you, how do you spend most of your days now? I mean, what, what's your passion? You know, the the, the book. Uh, I, I've had some uh, you know difficult uh, times recently, and and the book people kept pushing, and actually the book did what it was exactly meant to do. It became a really positive, uh, fun distraction because uh, you have to keep going and you got to keep doing. Uh, you know, what's next? I don't know. I hope I want to do more consulting, especially on retail and merchandising. Uh, I love retail. I, I love the Internet. Uh, I think both uh, brick and mortar and online uh retailing has light years to go even amazon as brilliant as they are and i'm a big amazon customer uh there's so much more they could be doing on the retail side of you know and the presentation side so there's, there's a lot you, you know it just you know I, i'm a i'm not a religious fanatic by any means but i do believe and i do pray and i always pray uh to the good lord to help me help myself just point me in the right direction. Uh, help me to be intelligent enough to make good decisions. Uh, and the rest will fall in. But I'm blessed by very, very special good people in my life. Certainly special to me. Well, that's evident from reading your book, Friends Bearing Gifts. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for spending some time talking with me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate the time, truly. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. And if you ever want to see that DVD on uh, Audrey, let me know. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Joe for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, Friends Bearing Gifts. In fact, it would make a great gift for a friend. It's well worth it. Check it out. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.